So 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm just going to read the first uh, uh, nine verses or so. We're going to kind of work through that. Um, I'm going to just read the first few and we'll kind of springboard from there and then we'll read the next bunch. But I just want to start the letter off. It is a letter from Peter to a group of believers. Peter says this right off the bat and it's in his normal um, period-esque greeting. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to to be obedient and to be sprinkled through the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I get thinking about this question, and I wanted to ask you this question. Have you ever felt like you are a stranger in a strange land? Uh, That's really... The first thing that I want to hone in on is that these believers were strangers in a strange land. We are strangers in a strange land. I got thinking about that phrase and I thought, have I ever really felt that way? And my mind went immediately to one of the opportunities that I had many years ago to go to Russia. And traveling there for an Antioch initiative that our church was doing to train pastors over there, I remember going to Russia and finding myself in a country where I couldn't speak the language, I couldn't read the alphabet, I couldn't read the language. Never been there before. Didn't know all the customs. And if it weren't for the translators that were with us, we would have been up the creek. The second time we went, a gentleman from our church and I went, and we didn't have anybody going with us. I was the, I was the lead guy I had been there before. And as I think about that, I'm thinking, that was a terrible decision. I didn't have a sweet clue what I was doing. And God was like using that as a huge trust thing for me because, man, I was wrestling with trust in the Lord in the midst of all that. And we fly directly into Nizhny Novgorod. The airport's probably not bigger, any bigger than St. John. We had nobody with us. It was just he and I. We come to the airport. We have nobody to meet us there to talk for us in Russian or anything. We had to go through customs and the whole thing. And then we're waiting for a guy we hope is going to show up to pick us up who really can't speak much English. And I'm just like, what in the world are we doing? This is crazy. And it's hard not to think, I'm a stranger in a strange land here. I'm a fish out of water. I don't know what I'm going to do. We've probably experienced that before. We, we may actually be th- sitting here today in 2023 and looking at our own country and saying, I feel like I'm a stranger in a strange land. This is not the country I remember. But more than that, Peter's talking to believers who find themselves in a place where they're not just strangers in a strange land because maybe they've immigrated from one place to another, but they're strangers in a strange land because They're believers in Jesus Christ, and they find themselves in a world that doesn't believe in Jesus, and is actually quite contrary to them as followers of Christ. I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs. I want to give you just a little bit of a background. I'm going to try to be as brief as possible. Peter actually identifies these believers. He says to those chosen, he's talking to believers here, living as exiles dispersed abroad. And then he shares where they're dispersed abroad. And so there's a little map that we're going to put up just so that you can see where these folks were dispersed. 
I circled it on the map and put First Peter up there for you. If you notice, if you know anything about geography, the purple over there is Italy, and then on the right-hand side along the Mediterranean, you see the Holy Land. These were believers that were dispersed in that area that circled up there, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's some discussion, actually Levi and I were talking about it because he's, he, he taught on this in, in youth group just recently, and I said, so how did we, you know, how did my message compare to your teaching? Um, was there any correlation? He said, well, actually, you said something that was quite different than me, not on the theological stuff, but on who the exiles were. He's like, I, I actually taught that they were dispersed Jews, and I'm going to tell you that that's not what I think. <laughs> um, there's great scholarly debate, and if you do any study on it, you can get really bogged down in all the arguments for who these people were. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you hang your hat somewhere, and, you know, it's not the biggest deal in the world if it's not bang on. I believe, based on my study, that these are believers that came from Rome. They aren't necessarily exclusively Jews. They could be Jews or Gentiles that under Claudius, who was very active in repatriating people or um, really just dispersing people from Rome to areas to colonize, I really believe that in my study that's, what these, that's who these believers were. There are folks that knew Peter and probably sat under the ministry of Peter in Rome. They are dispersed to this area, uh, an area that Paul was not able to get to, uh, during his second missionary journey, and in fact, there's a couple of these locations where the Holy Spirit literally prevented Paul from going, and yet they, these are believers that are there, and Peter writes to them. They're believers who were socially ostracized. They were slandered and maligned, and this slander and maligning undermined their relationships with their families and their community. Jobs puts it this way, not only were those deported from Rome often foreigners, but they were often viewed as foreigners at their destination as well, because colonists emigrating from Rome generally benefited from the resources frequently confiscated from the indigenous population, and because the colonists enjoyed the official sanction of Rome, they were naturally viewed as foreigners by the native populations, and at times with great resentment." See, Peter, through the book of Peter, and we're going to talk about it a little bit today, but we're going to get into it more in future um, messages, Lord willing. These were believers that did experience suffering and persecution. It's more localized. It wasn't necessarily the big persecutions under Nero or some of the other emperors, but they did suffer being ostracized and slandered and maligned, and they did suffer some persecution in their communities. It's who these people are that Paul's writing to. They were strangers in a strange land, but they weren't just strangers because they happened to be foreigners from Rome to this area. They were strangers because they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in, in, in communities that didn't know Christ as Savior and, in fact, worshipped totally different gods. And they found oftentimes that they were speaking a different language and they were living a different life. And they were very different than the people that were around them. Other thing that I want you to know is that the traditional view is that Peter wrote 1 Peter. Seems pretty obvious to you. It says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he writes to the people. You'd be surprised how scholars find all sorts of ways to say that somebody else wrote this book. At the end of the day, 
We're sticking with Peter wrote Peter because God's Word says that Peter wrote Peter. Likely written around A.D. 63 from Rome as Peter was in Rome. What does Peter say? Right off the bat, he's talking to these strangers in a strange land. But right in verse 2, he talks about the fact that they were strangers because they were chosen by God. And I've already really intimated this. These are believers in Jesus Christ. And this is one of the main reasons why they really were strangers in a strange land. And Peter reminds them of what Christ has done for them. And I really want to hone in on that. So look at me to, with me at verses 1 and 2. He says, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad. And then he says this at the end of verse 1 and end of verse 2. He says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Through this, excuse me, through the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Through, to obedience and the sprinkling of the, with the blood of Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, we are reminded of the fact that when these believers came to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when they experienced salvation from their sin, the entire Godhead was active and involved in all of this. The Trinity was involved. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were actively involved in the transforming work of salvation in the lives of these people. Right off the bat, we're told that they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. See, God knew who are His. He knew that these folks were going to respond to the preaching, the faithful preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they were going to place their faith in Jesus Christ. They were going to be His children. God knew it ahead of time. James right off the, or Peter right off the bat says, according to the foreknowledge of of God the Father. Appreciate how one writer put it this way, God did not simply observe them or have information about them at some prior time in history. Instead, God chose them according to or consistent with His plan and purpose long before God formed the people to be His own. Verse 2 and verse 20 actually are connected because verse 20 talks about the work of Jesus Christ. In verse 20 it says this, he was, talking about Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times to you. What was he foreknown before the foundation of the world? He was the spotless Lamb of God be, they, who was slain before the foundations of the world. God knew before an eternity past his work of salvation and the means by which he was going to accomplish that through the person of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2 Verse 19 says this, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation is firm, bearing this inscription, God knows those who are His, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from their wickedness. God knows who are His children. God knows beforehand who His children will be. We are known by God. I really started thinking about the, the verses from John chapter 10, when I was thinking about this particular passage, and I just want to read what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I am known, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. Talking about Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. 
Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Talking about his resurrection. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. And then he says these things in, in, at the, uh, near the end of the chapter. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus knew his sheep. The Father knows his people. And Peter reminds us of that right off the bat. These people were known, foreknown by God. But also they were sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. When the gospel was preached to these folks and they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they responded to the gospel message. They saw their sinfulness before a holy God and they said, look, I can't save myself. I'm, I'm desperate. As Andy already shared with us from Romans 5, before we come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, before we rest in the saving work of Christ, we're enemies of God. We're actually in open hostility before God. We might not think of that. We might not realize that. That might not be the first thing on our minds. But that's where we stand because we're just rebellious in our hearts against God. Hey, I don't want God to have any rule and reign over my life. I, I want to do what I want to do. And yet when we hear the gospel message and the work of Jesus Christ for us, and we put our faith and trust in Christ, we rest in His saving work. Scripture says that we're sanctified through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God consecrates us, sets us apart for the plans and purpose that God has for us when we respond to the gospel message. Actually says that in, in Ephesians, and I'm going to read these verses in a minute, but we're actually told that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. It's amazing how Paul says some things that, are, that just go hand in hand with what Peter says just in this first passage. You're chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and then lastly, the believers were chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's amazing how this one little phrase prompts in commentary, right, with commentary writers, so much discussion on what this actually means. Checking the syntax on this and this and this, and I, I'm reading it, and I'm just going, okay, I've got to take a step back and look at the plain stuff here. What's it saying? chosen to be obedient. They were obedient to the gospel message. They were obedient to respond when they heard that they needed Jesus as their Savior. But as believers, they're also called to be obedient for, the whole, for their whole lives to Christ. And as they were obedient to the gospel message, as they were obedient in responding and putting their faith and trust in Christ, they were sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter's really painting a picture or hearkening back to an Old Testament truth, an Old Testament situation, and I want to read it to you. It's, he's really drawing these believers 
attention back to what happened in the book of Exodus. Exodus 24, verses 3 to 8. What happened with the children of Israel in all of this situation? It says, Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all of the ordinances. And then the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that God has commanded. They responded in obedience. They heard God's word. They said, I obey. It says, then Moses wrote down everything that God had commanded. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars of the for the tri- 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. Then he took the covenant scroll and he read it aloud to the people and they responded, We will do and obey all that God has commanded. Then Moses took the blood and splattered it on the people and said, This blood is the covenant that God has made with you concerning all these words. Aren't you glad we didn't have to go through that? I was talking to somebody in between the services who was here at the first one. They said, you know, that, that's something that YouTube would cancel. I think you're right. You wouldn't be able to see that video. That was the old covenant. That was a shadow of what Christ was going to do for people when He died on the cross of Calvary. But you know, the people responded in obedience and they were sprinkled by the blood. It's a temporary offering for sin, but Jesus Christ, God the Son, the perfect Lamb of God came and He died on the cross of Calvary. He shed His blood for you and for me, was buried, rose again three days later. So that when we respond in obedience to the gospel message, what Jesus did to pay our penalty, when we respond in obedience to the gospel, Jesus Christ sprinkles us with his blood, makes us whiter than snow. God no longer sees our sin. He sees Jesus shed blood and his righteousness for us. That's why we can spend eternity with God. That's why we can enter his heaven. Because in their sinful state, we can't. And Peter's reminding these believers that this is what occurred for them. They were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to, the, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. For many of us in this room, we can say, you know what, that's me. Some of us here, we might say, you know what, that's not me. I'm, I'm, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I have not experienced that salvation yet today. My heartbeat for you is, as Scripture says, though you didn't love God first, He loved you and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins. Trust Jesus Christ today. Peter goes on, though, he wants to remind these believers in light of the fact that they are chosen by God, they are believers in Jesus Christ, that they have a living hope. 
And he shares that with them because he is bringing in the reality of the fact that they have suffered or they likely will suffer or they may suffer because of the fact that they are strangers in a strange land. And so, he talks about the fact that as strangers, they have a living hope. And the phrase living hope, I, I wrote as I was studying this out, I wrote this statement when it comes to the phrase living hope. It is the reality of what we can expect as Christians in light of what we may have to endure here. See, we may have to endure some pretty difficult hardships. But in the midst of those hardships, we are to keep in the forefront of our mind the reality of what we get to expect. What can I look forward to as I have to walk this difficult road of life? Peter lays it out for them. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he blessing God so much? Because he says this, because his great mercy he has given, because of his great mercy he has given to us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed at, in the last time. You rejoice in this, though even now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in, tri in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls." I just want to talk a little bit about the living hope that Peter talks about. He's saying, look, in light of some of these trials that you are facing, the grief that comes with these trials that you're fa facing, he said, I want to remind you of the living hope that you have. He says this, because of his great mercy, God's great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope. The word hope is, and I've said it before in the Bible, is not what we consider hope. Oftentimes, well, I hope to do this and I hope to do that. There's this kind of almost a, a pie in the sky thing, like, you know, on, ch on a chance. I, I hate, hate even using those phrases be, because it's kind of a, it's an expectation, but there's sometimes an off and off, not, awfully, not an awful lot of confidence in that. I'd like to do it, but I'm not really sure it's going to work out, right? There's all these circumstances that make it in the way. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of something to take place. And the confidence is not in me and my ability. The confidence is in God and the promise that he's given that is unshakable and, and sure. When, when Peter says, look, into a living hope, there's an expectation, a confident expectation that God has set that this will transpire. What is this confident expectation that we have? that we are going to receive our inheritance, which is eternal life with God. He describes that. He says, 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I'm just going to say this as an aside. We'll dive into more of this on Resurrection Sunday. But in order to be a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, we have to believe that Jesus actually personally, bodily rose from the dead. Jesus is still not in the grave. Okay? His spirit didn't just happen to come up in some ethereal way and met with people. No, he bodily rose from the grave. Jesus met with his disciples. He talked with them. They saw them. They touched them. In fact, Peter or uh, 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 Thomas was having trouble with this because Jesus met with some of the disciples, but Thomas didn't have the chance to even see him. And Thomas says, look, unless I can see him with my own eyes and touch him with my hands, touch the scars in his hands, I, I just won't believe that he's resurrected. And lo and behold, Jesus walks into the room, and he says to Thomas, see my hands and my feet, touch my side, see that I've actually raised from the dead. I'm bodily resurrected. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ was not raised from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied, because we're putting our faith and our trust in a Savior that never actually did what he said he was going to do. And yet, the Scriptures make it abundantly clear that Jesus, in fact, was raised from the dead, and He's the first fruits of them that sleep. Because Christ rose from the dead, we can have confidence that we will be resurrected one day to newness of life. Right? This is the promise. And so, because of that confidence, because of that assurance, because of that truth, it says that we, into a an inheritance. We have an inheritance. Eternity with Christ. And that inheritance is imperishable. It's immortal. It will never end. It'll last forever. It's undefiled. It's not tainted by sin. Right? You think about what, how sin has impacted us in this world. Think of those that have been suffering just just in one example from serious illness, and the devastation that that has on families, that, that, the devastation that it has on the body, because we live in a world where our bodies are breaking down, and it causes heartache and pain and frustration and sadness, and yet, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are going to inherit eternal life and that's not going to be tainted by sin. It's not going to be corrupted by sin. Sin is going to have no power and no effect on that. We're going to live eternally with God. We're not going to experience pain and suffering in any way, shape, or form. It's an inheritance that's undefiled, and it's unfading. The phrase is retaining its wonderful character. You know, a million years into our time with God is not going to get any less spectacular than the first day that we experience it. We are going to be just as enamored with God two million years in as we were day two. It's not going to lose its splendor. It's not going to lose its majesty. We are going to be in awe of God for all eternity. We are going to enjoy His company We are going to enjoy who He is. It is an unfading inheritance. It says that this inheritance is kept for you. You are being guarded 
by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. God, all-powerful, almighty God, is guarding our salvation. It cannot be snatched away from us. That's why Jesus says, my Father who gave them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Genuine believers in Jesus Christ cannot lose that saving work that God has done for them. Don't get me wrong. We talked already about the fact that a genuine believer in Jesus Christ is obedient to the gospel and obedient to Jesus as they live out their life for Christ. It's not this, you know, I just throw my ascension there. I just say, yeah, I'm going to add Jesus to my life and, and I'm saved. And then I'm going to live whatever way I want. That's not a genuine believer in Jesus. A genuine believer in Jesus trusts Christ for his salvation and lives his whole life faithful to Jesus Christ. As I'm thinking about some of these things that Peter is sharing, I can't help but think about that phrase again, that verse in Ephesians that I've already mentioned, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. He is our guarantee that we will be resurrected to eternal life with Christ. And lastly, Peter, in this phrase, when he's talking about that inheritance and encouraging them, he talks about the fact that you rejoice in this. They can rejoice in light of their inheritance, in light of what they have to look forward to because of their salvation from, through Jesus Christ. He says, you can rejoice in this even though you may suffer grief in various trials. If necessary, you suffer grief. How can they rejoice in the time of grief and suffering and trials? Because they understand what their inheritance is, but they also understand in verse 7, so that the proven character, the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which is perishable as refined by fire, may result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, you know what, these sufferings that you're going through, Christian, those are actually refining you, showing the genuineness of your faith. Because those trials are driving me back to the Lord. Those trials are making me get down on my knees and say, God, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know how to get through this. I don't know how to handle this. I need your help. I need your strength. I need your guidance. I can't do this on my own. And what it does is it just makes us more and more dependent on God. It refines us. The idea of refining by fire is proving or determining the genuineness of something. I'm going through the fires and the flames. Why? Because God is using that to refine me and show the genuineness of my faith. For some, God may be allowing you to go through a trial just because He wants you to come to Him and give your life to Him and experience salvation from Jesus Christ. That might be exactly why you're going through that trial right now. I had to ask myself this question, and I want to leave this question with you. It says, so that the genuineness of your faith or the character of your proven character of your faith more valuable than gold. And I got thinking, I had to ask myself this question. Is my genuine faith 
my witness for Christ, my testimony to Jesus, is that more valuable than gold to me? Is that more valuable than my things, my stuff, my comfort? Like, I, I really started to ask myself that question. I'm asking you this question. Is my Christian character more important to me than earthly belongings? Sometimes we put an awful lot of stock in what we have and kind of padding our portfolio for retirement. And I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in, and get ready for retirement. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying sometimes we put way more time and energy in that and we really don't think that much about our own Christian character. When God wants us to see that our Christian character is way more important than that stuff. It's my testimony with those around me way more important than the stuff that I've got. I had to ask myself that question. I feel that I need to ask you that question as well. What's your Christian character worth? For some of you, I want to leave you with this question. Do you have a living hope? Can you say, hey, I got that inheritance that you've been talking about, and I can't wait to have it, no matter what happens to me in this life? I have that inheritance. Or would you have to honestly say, look, I don't have that, but I want it. I invite you to talk to the person that maybe invited you today about how you can know for sure that you are a Christian, how you can know for sure that how you can trust Christ as your Savior. You can talk to one of us on staff. We'd love to talk to you about that. I want to leave you with this. Christians, like these believers, we are strangers in a strange land, but Paul in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we're ambassadors for Christ because we have experienced a reconciliation with God that we are the ones that are supposed to be representing God to those around us. We're representing the King of kings and the Lord of lords to the people around us as we're strangers in a strange land. We're not citizens here. We're citizens of heaven. But are we properly representing God to those around us? And as ambassadors for Christ, our one aim and goal is this, to tell people and compel people, be reconciled to God. Is that what we're saying? Is that how we're living? Is that what we're doing? We go into anybody and everybody and say, hey, I just want you to be reconciled with God. I have been. I know what that's like. I want you to experience the exact same thing. Let me pray.